Are you ready? I'm good, thanks. Excellent, okay. excellent. Okay, I'll just do a short little intro, and then okay. uh, then we'll talk. Okay, with okay. pleasure. Well, there's our signature tune coming to you. This is Rational Radio, and we'll be giving you a cracking show, as always, today. But all the music, apart from the uh, the opening song, will come to you from Johnny Clegg, the late Johnny Clegg, one of the South African heroes who passed away, as we, we all well know um, now, by now, in, he passed away yesterday. Well, one of the great songs of the late Johnny Clegg, uh, bringing in David Shapiro. Hi, Dave. I hope all's uh, going well in the Shapiro household. All morning, Johnny Clegg today. All of South Africa is... I, I, I was very, very sad. I, I, I really am. I, I had the pleasure of interviewing him a few years ago, and I think it was a time where he'd just been diagnosed. He wasn't feeling well. You could see it in his body, etc. You know, he he wasn't his normal self, but he was very soulful, and it was a wonderful interview. And 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 what I loved, and and, and unfortunately, I don't know how much people know about him, but I, what I loved about him was, or in the talk that I had, was as a kid, how he learned to play the guitar, and how he warmed to South African music. And the story that I remember most was that one of the cleaners in the building that he was staying uh, taught him how to play. I call it the steel guitar. I don't know what the correct thing is, but you know, the, the, the African guitar, which is a very tinny type thing. And he loved the finger work. He loved the sound. And he says he used to get this chap to come and teach him, you know, even though he take him off duty, uh, and make him go and, uh, you know, teach young Johnny how to, how to play and how to, you know, strum on the chords, whatever a musician does. And that it was a very, very, uh, poignant, uh, conversation they had. And I loved the stories of how he developed his style and how he developed and how he grew to, uh, who he was and genuine gentleman and such a sweet, humble man. And always a pleasure to be with. Never, he used to walk around shopping centers and that without any airs and graces and lovely man. So sad to see him go. Mm. Indeed, I think we've all got our Johnny Clegg stories. Uh-huh. Um, one of our, our business partners, um, Barry Fonsell, was Johnny's drummer for know, 20 years. Okay. Um, and uh, Barry tells wonderful stories about uh, about Johnny and his time, mm. and uh, and the last, the very very last uh, concert that they had was which which was in Hammersmith in London, mm. and uh, we we ran a piece at that stage with this just enormous uh, mm. full house. As he always got internationally, Johnny Clegg was a huge brand outside the country, Dave. He was he was remember at the, he was hugely popular in Europe, particularly in uh, France and in the uh, UK. I'll have yeah, you know. sure. yeah, I know, but I'm saying. It was it was strange, you know. They loved him, and I mean, he was uh, he was an international figure. I think also he was particularly proud of his son as well, and uh, the music that his son was producing. So it ran in the family. But uh, an international person, and uh, just just sad from South Africa's point of view. Markets today down a little. Yeah. Uh, see the all share index about three quarters of a percent. Dave, is it just sogginess, or can, can you give us a, a, a reason for why things are doing this? <laughs> I, you know, you, you try and make sense of uh, of all of it. I think we take our guidance from overseas. Um, Trump is his 
playing up his, his normal self, you know, with more threats against China if they don't come to the party. And uh, I think it just rattled markets as well as some of the results that we're getting from the banks. And you can expect that in an environment, and I'm talking U.S. banks, in an environment of zero interest rates or no margin for them, you wouldn't expect anything to happen. I think from our market, I'm trying to gather why we're under pressure. There are a couple of stories um, that have taken us down, of course, uh, there are more losers than winners today, but a couple of stories as well that have, that have weighed down uh, on the market. And the one that is particularly interesting is Impala. Um, I don't know the full story, but what they have offered, you know, they've got quite a lot of debt. And uh, there's a complicated uh, announcement out in which they want to retire that debt or, or convert that debt earlier. It was due for conversion into equity. In other words, you could convert your debt into shares down the line in 2022 and they want to bring it forward to take debt off their, um, you know, off their balance sheet and create more shares, but they're going to create a lot more shares. So Impala's come down about five or six percent and it's had a little bit of an impact, um, you know, on, on sentiments in the market and plats as well because I can't, the platinum price is holding up and the rand's weakened a bit. So it's unusual to see. Uh, the weakness that, uh, you know, we are seeing in platinum shares, but the other miners are holding up and, uh, um, a little bit of pressure on, 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 um, banks and also on the retailers. Um, that's because retail sales, uh, are still, they were better than expected, but still pointing towards, uh, trouble or, or pressure in the economy. And I suppose also now doubts or, uh, ahead of a, uh, interest rate decision tomorrow, I think there's also a little bit of uncertainty. But I wish I could really pinpoint it to an extent that, you know, I really knew what was happening. <laughs> that interest rate decision tomorrow uh, likely uh. to be a cut? I, well, the market's saying they should, you know, and I think it's, 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 uh, inflation has not run away here. We're not seeing inflationary pressure. In- Retail sales, uh, you know, inflation in that area is way, way below the, the broader rate of 4.5%. So I don't think that's an issue. Uh, also, you know, the, the RAND has improved quite significantly and, uh, so there's no, there's no pressure coming from weakness in the RAND. So there is the margin to reduce rates. Um, uh, if they're going to do it, you know, I don't believe in 25 points a quarter. If you're going to do it, do it. You know, make it a half a percent so it has an immediate impact uh, on consumers that they can go out and spend more and give the market a kick. What worries is, is if they take on more debt to go out and spend. That's the worry. Mm. You know, uh, if it comes to their bottom, you know, come if, if it means that they reduced interest rates, that's fine. But if they go out and borrow, then it's uh, you know, then, then it's a worry. David, we've seen Aspen. Uh, the one-time darling of the JSC uh, falling by nearly 4% again uh, today. It's now below uh, 100 rand a share. It is a stock that has been on the slide for quite some time now. What are you seeing there? Are you, do, if, you, if you go back to as recently as well, this time last year, this, the shares were well one and a half times higher than they are today. Uh, is this bargain basement time or are you concerned? I don't know. We've got to see whether they're making impact with uh first of all they've got heavy debt now and we've got to see whether they're making impact with their um you know with the new deals that they've that they entered into which is supposed to be their savior you know which was supposed to give them the growth and uh those are still dragging them down you know that's in the thrombosis area and in the uh anesthetic area i think those are two very very large deals that are taking a little longer to bed down and they, and the, you know, the longer the bed down, the more the debt starts to bite. 
and we haven't seen or heard of any major change yet, you know. So we've got to wait for the results to see whether they, you know, whether, whether progress is being made. Remember, they sold the infant milk business. They've got that money, but uh, that was sold in order to alleviate debt. So I'm a bit worried that the share price hasn't responded more aggressively, you know, which tends to show you that, uh, word around the market is, 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 is rather negative, you know, is rather cautious, put it this way. So, um, I think this is, we have to play this results by results. Would I buy at the moment? Probably not. Hmm. What would you be buying right now? See, Telcom had another good day up one and a half percent. It's, you know, it's not easy. It's, Alec, it's not easy to find stocks in an environment where growth is is under a lot of pressure. Um, every time I look at the market with a view to buying, um, I, I, I tend to hold back. Can I say one thing? I think from my point of view, I think we've probably seen the worst in the market. That doesn't mean it's going to turn around fast or speedily in that. Uh, and if you've got patience, you might want to start entering the market at the moment. But um, there's no suggestion from any of the business leaders and managers that things are turning around to a point where, uh, you know, the outlook is optimistic. So I take guidance from that. But, look, we've got a lot of solid businesses. I'm not going to discount that. There's some, you know, there's some very solid managers, um, you know, in, in, in this country. The, the miners seem to do all right, although those are not South African Inc., you know, BHP Billiton came out with some very good numbers. The other thing you're going to see some very good numbers from the iron ore producers, you know, which would include Anglo, uh, who owns uh, Kumba. I mean, we're seeing prices there, which are at five-year highs. But in the in the banks and in the retailers and the other consumer companies, the best you can expect is moderate growth. In other words, very very low. Um, you know, single-digit growth. I think that's the best that we can expect. And shares against that, I think some of the, you know, some of the prices are quite uh, expensive than that. So that's the kind of market we're in. Uh, got to be very cautious and careful. But um, and watch, watch for opportunities. Mm, be cautious, careful, and do your homework, as I suppose you could be doing on BHP Bulletin mm. to close off with. You said the results were out today. The shares didn't move much. They were a little bit higher, half a percent better. Uh, why do you think that was, Dave? I think I, I, I think the outlook is positive. I think this was a, a production update for the um, I think for the second quarter, or no, for them it's a fourth quarter. So this is full year. They they do end of June. Uh, we haven't seen the financial numbers, but I think um, with a, with an iron ore price well above a hundred, um, and iron ore production in line with guidance. In other words, um, they, you know, they met the production numbers. I think you're going to get some very, very strong numbers out of BHP, and I think that's just given the share a little bit of, un, uh, a little bit of an underpin. David Shapiro is the Deputy Chairman of Assassin Securities, and as always, uh, here to give us his insights into what's going on on the markets. Indeed, scattlings of Africa. Um, the late Johnny Clegg, whose music will be dominating our program today um, pretty appropriately. Well, one of the scattlings of Africa is Lord Peter Hayne. And man, hasn't he done South Africa an enormous amount of service. He was raised in this country, went uh, to the UK with his parents, who effectively had to rush away from the apartheid regime. And during his time 
in the United Kingdom. He became a member of Parliament. Uh, well, before he became a member of Parliament, he was well known in this country as an anti-apartheid sports activist who almost single-handedly, I guess, as was certainly as far as people in South Africa were concerned, was the man who caused the sports boycott of this country. He wasn't liked. He was not liked at all um, as a consequence of it. But, uh, well, Peter Hayne is, is back and uh, back in, uh, in the spotlight again today. And the reason for that is that he has been talking in the House of Lords or posing questions in the House of Lords on a company called Bain. Here's uh, the interview that Peter and I had earlier today. Peter, you've picked up the cudgels against Bain. Is it because of what they did at SARS? Yes, it is. I felt that was outrageous, and they've been rightly criticised, including by the Deputy Director General of the Treasury, who wrote an article uh, detailing this recently. I mean, the South African Revenue Service, SARS, has been completely turn from one of the most feared tax agencies, one of the most efficient in the world under Pravin Gordon uh, and, uh, and others, into one that's actually become dysfunctional in order to allow the Guptas and the Zoomers and the rest of them to continue to evade taxes and to uh, impoverish the tra- South African Treasury on top of what else they've done by looting our state-owned enterprises. And why I feel strongly about this, Alec, and put these questions down, to find out what government, British government departments um, were uh, doing here, is that I don't believe that these global corporates, and there's been a long trail of them, should actually get British government contracts. I think they should be punished for their misbehavior in South Africa. So it's extraordinary if you think about uh, what has come out of the Nugent Commission. It was premeditated, as you've said. Now, in fact, the, the Nugent Commission said it itself. There hasn't been any kickback yet. Bain themselves, unlike McKinsey, uh, or certainly from an international sense, haven't admitted any wrong. By bringing pressure to bear in the UK, is this one of your intentions, to perhaps force them to own up? Well, possibly. I mean, if that's what I'd like, frankly, because... When I did raise uh, these matters, first of all, in the House of Lords back at the end of 2017, 2017 and early 2018, what was interesting is it had been raging in South African politics and in the media in South Africa over Bell Pottinger, over KPMG, over McKinsey and HSBC and so on for, well, at least a year. And then there been the then came the email links and so on. It was only really when it was raised in London that it went global. And the New York Times then reported it, and the Washington Post, and also the Financial Times, the, the global financial newspaper, hugely respected. Suddenly, these corporates were on the front pages of all these newspapers. And the Economist did a big expose as well. Another global, globally read magazine. And then the other corporates, the McKinsey's and KPMG's and the rest of them, started feeling the heat. It was as if the South African operations could get away with blue murder, but it really hit them when their global reputation started to, to, started to suffer. And you know, in, in a small way, and putting down these questions is only really um, nibbling at the problem, to be perfectly frank. Uh, there isn't scope to do the kind of speech that I did under parliamentary privilege in respect of the other corporates and in respect of the Zoomers and the Guptas. 
there isn't one at the, op- that opportunity at the moment with you know the whole of our parliament sort of Brexit gridlocked and so on. But I hope that Bayern will feel the heat as well. I mean, you know, they've been they've been conniving and being paid fat fees for it to allow the South African Revenue Service to be turned over, to allow state-owned enterprises like ESCOM and Transnet and and South African Airways and and others to be looted. And they've been, you know, issuing soft reports, whitewashed reports, actually assisting this whole process. And they should pay a big penalty in terms of their bottom lines globally, is is what I believe. Peter, it's an interesting point that you made earlier that only when the international community started paying attention did it seem as though the the tide turned against the Zupiters. Is there, given that Bain, if you like, came to the party very late or was outed very late, is there an opportunity for, for that to happen again or, or might the moment have passed? I don't know whether it can. You, you're an, a, a news personality and sometimes a story really catches the moment, which it did towards the end of 2017. And you know how fickle the news media can be and then move on to something else. Frankly, they should. There is nothing more important in business and the financial sector uh, and the, the efficient running of an economy and therefore a society than an effective, effectively functioning um, absolute, uh, in, a, in, a, in a manner which is absolute, absolutely full of integrity than a proper tax collecting service. South Africa had one of the best and was proud for doing so in the world under the Proven Gordons and so forth. But it has been severely disabled and is, you know, it's an attempt to repair it now, but it's hard work. Whether, whether Bain will feel the heat or not, I mean, they're hoping to get away with it because they're keeping their heads low. Uh, but I don't think they should and I'll do my best to, to make sure that they don't. So what questions specifically did you ask in the House of Lords? Well, I asked whether there were any contracts held by um, Bain with government departments, and it turns out there are. I asked uh, what the scale of the work is and whether they are on preferred bidder lists, and it turns out that they are. Now, what I want is for them to be suspended from those contracts and be suspended from a preferred bidder for government work uh, list until they have owned up to what they did in South Africa, until they've paid back any fees that they've got and uh, added to that, made payments for any damage that they did. Um, you know, until that, I don't think they should uh, continue to op- operate uh, as if they are stain-free when they clearly are not. So you now have confirmation that indeed they are in, uh, they, they do have contracts with the British government. Do you have any idea yes. how much that could, be, how much could be involved here? No, I don't know, and uh, I, I'm trying to find out. And the government's being a bit coy about it. It tends to, uh, they tend to make it a bit difficult to actually uncover these things. And I'm not a kind of you know, uh, massively resourced uh, research agency. I'm just me. Uh, and um, therefore, I can only do a certain amount. But you know, if they had any um, honour and credibility in this matter, I think Bain would be owning up to what happened and saying that they did wrong and uh, making the, rec- the necessary compensation in order to establish their reputation again. They shouldn't get any contracts in South Africa either, by the way, either private or public. 
And we've seen how KPMG and McKinsey have suffered badly in South Africa as well as globally. And they're in the same box. And until they own up, uh, they're not going to be able to climb out of that box, I hope. Lord Peter Hayne, who is uh, talking to us from the House of Lords. And just to put it back into some perspective there, quoting from the Nugent Commission report, it was a premeditated offensive against South African Revenue Services by Bain for Moyani to seize control of SARS. Well, 200 managers were displaced, according to the Nugent Commission report, and we, uh, as uh, Lord Hayne told us a bit earlier, SARS, which in 2014 was regarded as one of the one of the best revenues, is uh, now regarded as one of the worst. Well, uh, I'm glad we were able to uh, get that uh, discussion with Peter Hayne, notwithstanding a few people who try to phone at the same time. I hope uh, uh, they didn't irritate you too much. We're going to be talking in just a moment about a South African company that is moving into the global arena. Hello, Peter Baird. Hey, Peter. It's Alec Hogg. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Alec, how are you? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Good to talk to you. Okay, I'm just going to fade the music and then we're on. A company that really has been doing fabulous things on the continent, um, but is better known for what it's doing in the UK, is Investec. And Investec's uh, head of private equity uh, joins us now, Peter Baird, uh, to tell us about a, a really interesting deal that you've done, Peter. Now, it wasn't long ago that we in South Africa were looking to Egypt for the uh, for the nations uh, for the for the cup of nations um, where we beat the hosts Egypt. But you've gone there for a completely different purpose. Um, in fact, to go and buy a company. So, uh, Alex, good evening, and thanks for uh, for having me on. Just quickly on Johnny Clegg, we were playing a whole bunch of his music last night uh, for our kids, for whom first it was it was great, but this is a, a bit of a revelation to them. Uh, on Egypt, um, so yes, we uh, we announced this week uh, the eighth investment in our second private equity fund, uh, which a Pan African uh, closed end fund, eighth investment, which was uh, the you know, controlling stake in a. Egyptian supermarket chain called Spinney's. Um, 13 store chain, relatively small, but, uh, great growth characteristics, uh, and, and a lot of, you know, relatively fundamental attractions. Now, we're of course 10 minutes into this investment, so, uh, you know, we'll see how, how it all plays out and what we need to do. But, you know, we really like Egypt. We really like the grocery retail sector generally. Uh, and you know, we, uh, we definitely like it in the context of the Egyptian economy. I was having a look back at Spinney's, and it was actually uh, established in 1924. It's only got, uh, well, 13 outlets according to the, the latest numbers that I could see. So it's been a very slow and steady growth, <laughs> if you think, over that time. Yeah, we're hoping by 2024 we'll be at 26 stores. No, we, um, <laughs> no, it's a little bit, it's a little bit misleading and confusing. So the Spinney's brand has been around in the Middle East since 1924. And in many of the Middle Eastern countries, actually Spinney's is, is by far the leading, uh, grocery store banner. Uh, and, you know, as, as, as dominant, you know, as, as pick and pay and shop, right? or uh, Woolworths, ShopRite, and Pick and Pay maybe together here. 
In Egypt, however, they uh, had not been in the market very long, uh, and it, it was essentially a, a, a franchise use of the name. And I use the word franchise quite loosely there, but it was a uh, um, an affiliate of the Spinneys in other countries. Um, and uh, so franchise is actually the wrong word. But uh, So there have been Spinneys in many of these jurisdictions for a long time, but there's only been Spinneys in Egypt for about 11 years. Um, what, what, what's interesting about it is that uh, they had a couple of big hypermarkets, um, which which did really well, uh, you know, for the first several years, and then they brought in a new management team about five or six years ago, which has really accelerated the growth. So it's actually they've been growing significantly faster than would appear, um, but we uh, we'll hope we'll pick it up from here. Yeah, and the deal, of course, uh, does have something to do with the former owners. It always does. A barrage group under a lot of pressure because uh, of plenty of debt in the UAE. Uh, without the problems that a barrage got into, and I think they, they were involved in the, uh, in the waterfront in Cape Town as well, which they had to offload. Without that, would this opportunity have even become available? So I, I think, I think the V&A owner was uh, I want to say Dubai World. Which, so what weren't these guys? Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So, so look, with the Braj, um, which which did in various structures own this asset at one point. Like, I, I mean, I, I can't really speculate as to uh, you know how they were run, the the, the difficulties that they're facing. Um, this this asset, you know, has been discussed as a potential investment for for some time uh and you know the guys on my team have been uh, you know kind of cultivating it as a potential deal for about three years uh we were glad that it came available uh and we're glad that we were able to secure it but i, I mean i, I think uh, the abroad story is so opaque uh and at this point so partially written i'm not sure it'd be helpful to speculate i mean one of the abroad executives pled guilty in the united states just in the last couple of days and said he would turn state's evidence um so i, I think it will uh maybe the the story will spool up again from here um at this stage we're just focused on the asset that we have management team that we're backing uh and and what we hope will be a good a good run in egypt yeah, but the, the point about this, Peter, was uh, if Abraj had not got into trouble, presumably this asset would not have become available. I, I'm not sure, again, because I mean they had been talking about selling it uh, several times over the last few years. And I mean, they were, they were ultimately I'm a private equity firm, so they were uh, they were traders. Uh, and, you know, th- there had been other relatively serious discussions um both with us and with other parties about an acquisition of Spinney's Egypt before. So I was, I'm not sure it was directly related to the, I'm not sure it was directly related uh, to, to Abraj's troubles. Um, so I'd just be conjectural to, to say, I mean, there's so many different parties involved now in Abraj between joint provisional liquidators and limited partners and the existing management and, uh, and the courts, of course. So I, I do, I don't know what was, what was motivating kind of any of the, uh, any of the decisions on the other side of this. Mm. Uh, the Egyptian media and the UAE media are, estim- or, are speculating a number. You haven't disclosed the number. They speculate a number of a hundred million dollars. Is that way out of the ballpark or is it, is it that substantial? I, I, I would love to comment, but but we we have agreed that we wouldn't actually you know disclose any of the financial information around the around the transaction. Mm. Um, the uh, you know 
Uh, in time, we hope you know, all will be made clear. Uh, certainly at the, at the time of our exit, we can be more transparent, but we, we really have agreed to, to, to keep very close, uh, very close lid on the numbers. But the point is it is a substantial business. Spinney's itself is, is a substantial – Spinney's Egypt, you know, which is where we've made our investment, uh, is a substantial business. Um, you know, it's been around a long time. Uh, it's you know, run very well. Uh, it's a you got you know it's a very strong brand in the Egyptian market. Uh, it's got great reputation. You know, I mean, it has a lot of the attributes we think of a of a really terrific growth story. It's really I mean it's thir- thirteen stores. That was I think that was the one number that was disclosed uh, in in the in the press release aside from our phone number. Um, thirteen <laughs> stores, and uh, and you know we 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 have we have modest. Uh, growth expectations from here. This is a management team that built a chain of 100 stores before uh, in Egypt. They really know how to select sites and roll out stores in a, an efficient, effective way. They've got a nice pipeline of, of stores. We actually have have one opening uh, in early September, so we'll actually probably combine our closing dinner with that. Um, and you know, we just we don't want to back this this team in rolling out what we think is a great value proposition to the Egyptian consumer. Peter Baird is the head of private equity at Investec. Johnny Clegg with uh, the Scatterlings of Africa. Well, here we have, um, well, um, I wouldn't call him a Scatterling of Africa because he's very much based in the Cape and looking at South African companies, but a veteran of the asset management industry, Chris Logan, joins us now. Chris, you have uh, you helped us a few weeks ago uh, looking at what was going on at Tongart, but there's been some similar issues at its former subsidiary, which was spun off in 2007, uh, Huleman, the aluminium company. And you've been having a look at that very closely. You've sent me a lot of information. In fact, we will be publishing it all on Biz News in the, uh, in the next day or so. But what drew you to Huleman in the first place? Um, hi, Alec. Yes, thanks. Um, I've been following Huleman since it was listed. Um, it's basically been on a downtrend since it listed, but it had one good rally in 2013, which I was lucky enough to catch. Um, and I've kept in touch with it. And it's a very interesting company, which should be doing exceptionally well, but is doing very bad um, to the point where it's, it's fallen more than Tongard has from its high. It's off something like 95% from its high. Um, and what drew me to it to look, relook at it again is, you know, Tongart focused everyone's mind on how good companies can be wrecked. And 
a similar situation has occurred here at Huleman. What should be a very good company is being wrecked. Mm. So, so that's the major thing. When you say it should be doing well, Chris, uh, how so? Well, globally, it's known as an aluminium roller, rolling mill. Uh, globally, these type of companies are called rollers. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest one is Novellus. And at the moment, the, all the rollers are posting great results because they're benefiting from the substitution and sustainability benefits which aluminium offers. So more and more cars are containing aluminium components, more and more aircraft, as you know, and then on beverages, there's this huge swing into aluminium cans. So all of these rollers have great demand characteristics. And on top of that, they're benefiting from the circular economy. Uh, by that I mean these rollers buy scrap um, and they buy it at a big discount as opposed to buying aluminium at the LME price. Often they're buying the scrap at half the price they pay for aluminium, new aluminium. And that boosts their margins. So, for instance, the leading company in the sector, Novellus, last year earned an ROE of 46% which is an astonishing number for any company anywhere. Um, so it's against that background of all of Huleman's global peers doing exceptionally well. But, you know, we found Huleman doing exceptionally badly. It, it, it's, it's almost a tragedy. And as you'll know, Alec, you know, Huleman's a big part of the social fabric in, in Natal and Peter Maritzburg. Mm. So, so why is it doing badly, you, Chris? What, what's happening there? Well, Alec, the big problems, first of all, is the cultural problem. And it's the same Tongard culture. Culture of what I would call entitlement and non-performance. And then if you want to look specifically... In, in investment management terms, there's been massive misallocation of capital, no cost control, particularly in employee costs. I mean, this company has, a, until Peter Stardy resigned a couple of weeks ago, it was a 14-member board. And it, it's, it's something like a 600 million market cap company. For instance, Anglo's, which is 500 billion, has a 12-member board. Hmm. So the tone at the top, they just increased their exco from seven members in 2015 uh, to 13 members now. So really bloated at the top. Um, and you'll realize there are commodity characteristics to a product like aluminium. You've got to keep your costs under control. Uh, so that's the one thing. And then, of course, misaligned incentives, you know, which is common across Generally, most South African companies, the guys are getting bonuses and incentivized on the wrong things. But it's that deep Tongard culture, lack of cost control, misallocation of capital, and an inability to change. I took them to task at the recent AGM about, you know, all their directors and that, and you would have thought they would have addressed it, but nothing. And the AGM was only, it was 15th of May. Since then, the share price is nearly halved. 
halved. How many people were at the AGM? The and and maybe just for people who those who haven't really followed this stuff, the annual general meeting is the opportunity for shareholders to pose questions to the management team and the directors and, and often it's the only chance you get in a year. So one would presume that in a company that's done so badly there would be interest in, in attending. Well, I actually dialed in, Alec. There was uh-huh. one other shareholder who dialed in and uh, gave them a hard time about their impairments because they've impaired their assets uh, to the extent of like $3.6 billion. Um, but there were, as far as I could make up, there were only two people who asked questions. Mm. And the tragedy was that the big institutions, for instance, approved this bloated director's um, remuneration. I happen to know there are some smaller institutions who, who did vote against it and did try and mount a bit of a, uh, resistance. Um, but once again, you know, the, the institutions have uh, let industrial South Africa down and, you know, gone with bad practices. So what, what, what happens next? What are you hoping to achieve by becoming, going public and uh, talking to us in this way? Well, Alex, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I think, you know, we can't keep ruining the fabric of our economy like this with, you know, companies like Tongard and Uleman being wrecked. Um, I'm watching it closely. This is a bit of a call to arms, I guess. But, you know, I'd also, I think there could be a huge money-making opportunity here if we could get a catalyst which turns it around, turns around this bad behavior, this deeply ingrained bad behavior. This company could be a good takeover target, except, you know, what mitigates against that at the moment is the negative political outlook which, you know, South Africa commands on the world stage. Um, so I'm, I'm watching it closely as a money-making opportunity, but I guess at this stage I'm just saying enough's enough you know, can't people finally come together and start fixing these things? Because each one of them that we lose, you know, it just destroys the country. Um, and I'm engaging with a number of institutions at, at a high level to, to try and tell them, guys, you know, we can't keep on doing the, the same things. We've got to start leading. It's up to shareholders, I think, to start leading some of these poorly managed companies back to health. Chris Logan is uh, with Opportune in Cape Town and giving us his insights into the other company in the old Tongart stable. We'll be talking in just a moment uh, to Alan Windy, who's the Premier of the Western Cape. Alan Wendela. Hello, Alan. It's Alec Hogg. How are you? Yeah, Alec. Well, and you? Very well, thank you. Are you ready to go on? Yes, yeah, sure. No problem. Perfect. Thank you very much again. And it's actually nice and clear, the line, so we're all good. Cool. Okay, I'll just turn, okay. The, I'll just turn the music down and we'll be there. Okay. The late Johnny Clegg, uh, once again, giving us his, uh, some of his amazing contributions to South Africa. Well, in the Western Cape, Alan Windy is uh, trying to do something similar. He's the recently appointed 
Premier of the Western Cape after the May election. And uh, Premier Wendy, you are doing something rather unusual, bringing in the army. Now, there's a, there are a lot of people outside of your province who are questioning this, saying it, it could be a precedent that we might all regret in future. Maybe you can just put us into uh, or take us into your confidence and, and give us some perspective on what motivated this decision. Okay, so, I mean, it's something that we in the province, uh, my predecessor and then I, have been calling on uh, for a long time. We have got some very, very high-level uh, murders, specifically in our gang hotspot areas. Um, so, already 2,500 people murdered in the Western Cape this year, and uh, 900 of those murders focused in 10 of the of the uh, gang-related hotspot areas as determined by the police. So this request has been around for a while. Um, and I, I think my main motivation has always been specifically walking the streets in those areas where people would say to me, you know, just do something, please, just bring in the army. We need peace and quiet. We need to stabilize this area. We need to be able to get this under control um, because it is out of control. That's the first thing. And the second thing is specifically in an area like uh, Lavender Hill, where seven years ago we had a similar sort of explosion of gang fights and shooting, and the military were brought in then as well as a peacekeeping force in support of the police and also under the command of the police. And uh, the people remember that really, really fondly because suddenly there was a much more peaceful environment in which to operate. And, of course, the military's job is to is to be the peacekeeper while the police do their work. Um, and so be- between those two and this rampant runaway uh, violence and shooting between uh, warring gangs uh, fighting over the drug trade is just out of control and, and the police whose job it is is just insufficiently resourced. So this is to add a fix to the resource. Unfortunately, if we have to wait for them to fix their resources, there's four and a half thousand policemen and women too few in our province just to get to a kind of norm. Um, and one would expect that at least in the 10 hotspots, there would have been an extra focus of policing and it has been not the case. So that's why we've been calling for, for support from the army as a peacekeeping force while police do their work. And, and how many soldiers are required? Okay, so I'm not too sure about that, and, I, and I'm also not too sure how many are going to be uh, in place and when, um, because obviously it's the president that signs off on it, and it's under police uh, management, so Becky Clele, uh should be able to answer that question, not me. And this is also probably one of the problems that provinces don't really have control when it comes to policing and police management. It's all managed in Pretoria or from national. Our job is an oversight uh, role. And quite frankly, when you've got crime in these hotspot areas like like it is, uh, that's why I've also been fighting to say we need to actually get more control at a provincial level. We really are trying to – I don't need to be in the management right now, although I wouldn't mind being, um, but uh, we, we don't even have a system where police would, would formally engage with us and report uh, or, or work with us uh, in this operation. Uh, I pledged over the weekend to Becky Taylor that uh, every department in the provincial government uh, I would make available in whichever way we can to build a long-term 
long-term plan for safety. So, for example, safer schools and value systems within schools specifically focused on those hotspot areas or after-school programs, uh, or how do we bring neighborhood watches, which we do fund and help uh, set up? How do we get them more involved? Um, so we really are committed in whichever way we can to help build uh, within these hotspot communities while the military and the police are running these operations so that when they do leave, um, that we've got other plans and mechanisms in place to retain the safety, to retain uh, the alternative economy. Just to get a little bit of a perspective here, the national objective at the moment, national government is focusing all, well, most of its attention on Eskom because without electricity, you don't have an economy. In the Sorry. Western Cape, without tourism, you don't have an economy, I presume. And, and, and I'll I, I take you back to the Economist article of last year where it showed that although South Africa's murder rate is down, the Western Cape's mur- or Cape Town's murder rate was up to the same level, 69 for 100,000 people that it was in 1994, which is kind of double what it is in the rest of the country. Is, is, is that the way you're looking at this? We've got to fix this problem. We've got to get the gang sorted. Otherwise, tourism uh, is a threat. So, yeah, I mean, my real passion and has been for, for the last 10 years that I've been in government is that of jobs and economic growth. Um, but the, and we've done, we've done fairly well within the constrained environment of the South African context. Um, we've done fairly well as an economy in the province, um, you know, whether it be our tourism economy, our agricultural economy, the financial sector. Um, but I think we've almost got to that stage where we're reaching a ceiling. Um, and if we don't fix two things, the one is the, the crime levels, because they are now having a huge effect on, on decisions when it comes to investment and visiting and whatever those economic decisions are. And the second, of course, is congestion. So those are two uh, big priorities of mine that I will be talking about tomorrow in my State of the Province address. But um, also those two those two areas anchored in two national management spaces. So the police and management out of Pretoria, and of course Prasa and our Metro Rail also run out of Pretoria, which is a big issue for us and the economy. People can't get to work uh, efficiently on time and safely, and because everybody's moved off the train system, uh, they are now involved in commuting by either buses or taxis or motor vehicles, uh, private uh, cars. And so that also leads to uh, people making uh, economic decisions or negative economic decisions in our in our uh, sense because congestion is a big thing. So those are the two big focus areas for me. So often what happens is that you, you fix one thing and there's a knock-on effect. Uh, of course, it's the other way around. You have one bad thing and there's, a, there's an impact uh, almost like dominoes that fall. What are the, what are the, the issues? You, if by bringing in the military... And there've got to be risks to this because who knows who might be president in future, and who knows how the military might be used in future. But if by bringing in the military you can sort out the gangs, what are likely the consequences from that? Well, obviously, what we've got to do—I mean, we've got the military, but we've also got uh, November last year. We had what we'd also been calling for a long time—a specialised unit. Uh, the anti-gang unit. Unfortunately, we also have another problem in our policing system, and that is uh, the top management of the provincial police structure are at each other's throats. So we don't have proper management either, even at a provincial level. And uh, so we have also got anti-gang units. Um, hopefully between, they, they can get 
uh, also in this process because there is a there is definitely a, a greater commitment now um, post the election uh, from the president from uh, the minister uh, of police saying we've got to we've got to look at how we we do make the province safer. Um, I have now also we, we'll continue to work from the bottom up. But I will also set up a priority committee, um, which the first meeting is on the 25th of this month, where we will start to bring in the whole criminal justice system um, to, to at least round the table with us alongside those various departments in the province and the police at a national level um, to start to build this um, extra plan of safety within these hotspot areas, knowing that the military are here just for a short while to support the police. And I mean, as you say, I mean, I, I, obviously I, I've got lots of uh, emails and calls around the risks when the military come in. And I think also there's a big risk when the outside world and the investors see us uh, supporting the the bringing in of the military to act as a stabilization force. Um, people, you know, started, suddenly starting to ask all sorts of questions. But Personally, you know, it also means that we, our, 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 our real pressure that we've been putting on national government is now starting to hit home um, because we're starting to get these results. Uh, people are saying, okay, well, what are we going to do to try and get it better? So although it creates a negative brand initially, for me, it is actually positive in the way that people are now starting to focus, starting to think about it. Um, and we've got to bring these crime areas out of, under control. If we don't bring it under control, we're in big trouble. Well, I guess on the tourism side, and we know all about that. Just to, to close off with, how long do you think it's going to be necessary for the soldiers to be there? So the initial commitment is for three months with the option for further uh, time. Um, I mean, obviously, we'll have to see. Uh, we'll, we'll make that judgment call um, with, you know, within the next three months as to whether we could secure it for, for some extra time. Um, and so time is going to tell and hopefully that we've got enough energy because everyone's focusing that we also do start to create the alternatives. Um, at the same time, it's not as if we're going to sit back and say, okay, well, now let's let the police and the military do their thing. Um, we've got also our own pilot projects where the city is definitely putting a lot of support in. Um, we're running a project now. Where we've put an extra hundred uh, safety officers into Bontehevel. Uh, we've had them since the 1st of July, so monitoring what happens when we put uh, taxpayers or ratepayers' money into extra policing and, and deploying law enforcement officers and, and safety officers in an area so we can control it to the neighboring areas and see whether that also helps. At the same time, doing joint operations with the police, uh, bringing in economic activity. Um, you know, it's one of those things that it's not as if the, the you, you mentioned uh, dates and 94 figures. Uh, gangs have been a part of Cape Town for a very long time, just as they are part of Los Angeles or uh, many South American country uh, 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 cities um, how are we uh, there's no silver bullet there's no uh, mechanism that someone else has said well this is actually the recipe to deal with it um, it's linked it's very complex it's linked to poverty it's linked to our past history it's linked to so many things um, but in my opinion and the way that I like to behave in government is we've got to keep trying things until we find things that work and get better other things that don't work we'll just stop doing them and try something else and uh, so 
I've only been in office for a short while, but uh, we're going to be putting lots of energy from this government into building a safer, a safer province. Western Cape Premier Alan Windy, and uh, lovely to have him on the program this evening. We know we've got lots of community members, business community members in the Western Cape, and uh, I guess uh, if you are um, looking at a festering sore, at some point in time you've got to get in there and sort it out. Whether bringing in the military is the only option, well, I guess uh, that's something that only time will tell. Well, it's been an interesting program this evening, uh, bringing in people from uh, the investment world, Chris Logan and David Shapiro, and then hearing about private equity, and now with Alan Windy, the uh, Premier of the Western Cape. We close off with... Uh, Lindsay Duff, who I met in London, Lindsay, it was um, when you were looking after inward investment at the South Afri- at the High Commission, in other words, the South African House in London. A pretty, pretty tough job that you had back then. Um, I, I guess um, there's only so much that one can do to try and promote inward investment when you have the Zuptoids running riot. Yes, yeah, that was uh, certainly a, an interesting time of my life, um, but very pleased to now be back in South Africa, uh, heading up the team at, at uh, the new business I'm with. So when did you decide uh, to join this company in particular? And we, we're going to talk in some detail uh, about uh, what three words, but from the position that you were sitting in at South Africa House, in a very senior position uh, in, the, in the foreign fo- uh, staff of this country, you must have had lots of options. For sure. Um, and it was an incredible role in the sense that um, we got to meet with leaders of industry and South African businesses who'd set up in London, uh, particularly, again, to drive investment and represent the interests of South Africa abroad. Um, so I had a couple of options, but had a, an inkling that it was time to come home. Um, after four years in the grey skies of London, I was, I'd had enough. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed a natural progression. I had an interest in technology particularly and the potential of tech ecosystems to transform particularly the lives of um, young people across the world. And it seemed like a particularly interesting realm that I wanted to get into in South Africa, which is why when the opportunity came up with what three words, I decided to to jump at it and to contribute to the tech scene more locally um, and to, to head things up here. There's an organization in the UK called Syndicate Room, and they rate the 100 fastest growing countries companies in the country. What three words is in in position number 33 for 2018? Uh, And it is a a fascinating uh, change in the way that we look at addresses, postal addresses, or in in the UK they have postal codes, but this takes it one step further. Just in real basic terms, unpack how, uh, how what three words actually works. Sure thing. Um, What Three Words is essentially at its core a global digital addressing system. So we've basically taken traditional street addresses as we know them, think 55 Jones Road or 275 Yansmuth Avenue, and we've realized they're not actually fit for purpose, Alec. So we decided to take something that has been around for hundreds of years and has never really changed and evolved in that time and to completely rethink it. So What Three Words has basically divided the world up into a grid of three meter by three meter squares based on GPS coordinates. And we've assigned every single square its own totally unique, what we call a three word address. So it's a three word identifier that refers to an exact nine square meters, literally everywhere in the world. So as an example, our uh, office in Woodmead in Johannesburg can be found at Punk Braved 
warriors. Punk. Uh, the, <laughs> That's a nice one, everybody Dad. Thinks, everybody thinks we chose that, but we didn't actually. That was complete fluke. Um, the right foot of the Statue of Liberty in New York City can be found at Chip Twice Update. And that's the only square in the world that is called Chip Twice Update. Mm. So it basically means that anyone can now talk about anywhere really, really simply. And we came up with it, Alex, because we realized that traditional addresses are really limited um, and actually a very limiting factor for millions of people globally. The UN estimates that actually 4 billion people have an inadequate address if they have one at all. So I don't know if you can think back to um, the days of opening a bank account or your first bank account. You always need proof of residence when you open up a bank account. You need proof of residence to register on the electoral roll, to actually literally vote and participate in your own democracy. You needed to register of birth. And if you don't have proof of residence, which millions of people, particularly in South Africa, don't have due to the legacy of apartheid spatial planning, it means you actually have a bit of a barrier to economic prosperity. It means you can't participate in the economy and indeed in your democracy as you should be able to. So we like to think that three word addresses are on the way to helping solve that issue for millions of people. Well, and it's easy to find out. I was looking at my favorite coffee shop, which is in the Branson Shopping Center. It's called Unzips Heave Robot and so on. In, in houses, you well, in, in properties, you have a number of uh, clearly properties are bigger than nine square meters, so you have a number of these. But is there an infinite number of words? Most of the words, when I looked on the app and I had a look at the different addresses, most of the words are like that, easy to understand, walkway, carbon, unzips, heave, robot, not these terribly long words that uh, you might have to delve into if you run out of them. Exactly. So we've designed the system especially so that the easiest words um, in each language that we're available in are in A, urban centers, and B, the countries that actually speak that language. So we're not just available in English. Uh, we're also available in 35 other languages globally, and that's everything from Turkish to Mongolian to even Isuzulu here in South Africa, which is brilliant. So we've put the easiest three-word addresses in Isuzulu in South Africa, because our rationale was that's where the most Zulu speakers are going to be. That said, you can still navigate to the jungles of Brazil in Isizulu if you need to. Mm. So we've tried to make it as easy as possible by using dictionary words and not names. If you think about trying to speak into your device, Alec, if you need to navigate somewhere and say it's, you know, 265 Jansmatz Avenue, your average Google isn't going to actually say, oh, yeah, I know what Jansmatz is. It's going to come back with, nope, didn't recognize that. What are you talking about? Jansmuts what? So if you're using dictionary words in voice input, um, you have a much easier way for that device to understand what you're talking about. So instead of saying 265 Jansmatz, you can say navigate me to table chair spoon and it can understand you. And in fact, that's how a lot of the businesses that we're working with today are using us. So um, Daimler um, has actually invested in the business and they've put us into a number of their Mercedes-Benz vehicles so that Mercedes-Benz drivers can navigate with voice to three-word addresses. They say, hey, Mercedes, navigate me to what three words, punk braved warriors, and they would land up at our front door in Woodmead. Hmm. I, I noticed from the website that there's a presence in Mongolia and a presence in South Africa uh, and yes. obviously in the UK and I presume in the US as well. Uh, is our country and Mongolia, have they been selected uh, in particular ways or, or, or why, why would you appear so strongly on the website? <laughs> Mongolia was actually the first country where we set up um, a local market office and that was because the government of Mongolia was the first one to come on board and work with us 
to introduce what three words as an addressing standard in that country. So our team there has done a phenomenal job of actually working with the government and the postal services particularly so that if you want to send a letter in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia to anyone else in the country, you can actually just send a letter to Alec Hogg at Table Chair Spoon and they'll be able to deliver it to that exact address. So they were the first of now eight governments that we've been working with since the business was founded uh, to introduce what three words as an addressing standard. South Africa was set up as a country office uh, just under two years ago, and that's when I came home from the UK. Um, and that was because our, our management team recognized the need for a solution like this in South Africa. Um, because of the legacy of apartheid spatial planning, millions of people are excluded from actually having an address. Uh, government, as we all know, has much more pressing priorities and dressing system and actually addressing streets and suburbs and informal settlements is never really at the top of the list. So we know that actually we can come in and actually start making a difference, hopefully, to people on the ground um, from the get-go. And that's, I think, what we've been doing with a number of our commercial partners and also partners to come with our launch next month. Lindsay, have you got any uh, relationships with Waze or Google Maps or Alexa or... Um uh, Siri, uh, because surely that would be a real breakthrough. So on our app, if you download the free What Three Words app, you're actually able to voice navigate in app. You can, in the search bar, uh, click the little microphone and say table chair spoon or punk braved warriors, whatever three word address you need to find. Um, and that voice technology is actually built in there, voice recognition. Um, so it would, uh, excuse me, speech recognition, that's a different thing. So it would recognize the words that you're saying. Um, and you're then able through the app to actually navigate with whatever preferred navigation you use in your daily life. So off the What Three Words app, if you need to find our offices at Punk Braved Warriors, you could then navigate with, if it's Google Maps is your preference, Apple Maps, um, Waze, uh, even offline providers like Navme, you can now do that. Um, you can now even through our app call an Uber to a three-word address and be dropped off at a three-word address. But you've got to so, use your um, app at this stage. It's, it's not, it, it wouldn't go through the Waze app, for instance. No, not yet. So those conversations are ongoing at a global level, and that's not something we would drive in South Africa. But um, the ability is there. The flexibility is there. Essentially, a, a what three words address is a GPS coordinate. So if that integration is in place, then any map and any navigation system can understand a GPS coordinate and get you to where you need to be. And what's the reaction been like from the South African government? You've unpacked why it's important that uh, many people who haven't had the opportunity of having an address in the past get one. But uh, we know, for instance, the post office has got its own issues. The home affairs have got some quite pressing priorities of their own. Have you had any joy? We've certainly had those discussions and we've begun those discussions. I think in many ways, Alec, our timing was slightly off. Um, obviously, there was a lot of um, focus on the May elections this year. And we all know, and, and having worked in government, we know that things sort of um, quietened down in a big way in terms of policy decisions or anything um, a good six to 12 months prior to those elections. So um, we've been laying low and actually working with a number of private sector partners. Um, and now that the elections are over and things are settling down with the new administration, we plan to pick up those conversations again to, to get things cracking. We think uh, particularly with the Department of Home Affairs, with, as you say, the post office, um, and also even bodies like SA and, and the Census Bureau, we think there's some really exciting things we can do with three-word addresses. Lindsay Duff is with What Three Words. As you heard, uh, she was in London with the High Commission there looking after inward investment into South Africa, joined this organization a couple of years ago. And, and go and have a look at it, whatthreewords.com. Uh, you, you can find out what words uh, your own address 
is, and um, by using the app, as she said, it's an easier way to navigate pretty much anywhere. I suppose uh, the the future uh, always does get better when you have a lot more innovation. Well, that's been tonight's edition of Rational Radio.